Good morning. Today is a really special day in the life of our church and in our family ministry. So I would like to invite Dina and her family and John Jay to come forward. Uh, Today we get to practice something that is sacred and special in our church, and that is um, the act of dedication. And so Dina... This beautiful child in yellow here um, has been attending here for a while, and we're so excited that she wants to be dedicated to us and that we can love on her. So we are always really grateful as a congregation when families invite us into their lives. And it might be implicit that when you show up in this space, we ask all of you to show up here. and not leave anything outside of these doors. And in these moments, we can make that hope explicit. And so here's a family who's been with us for quite a while and are in some ways trusting their relationship to each other, their relationship with this young daughter of God uh, to us and us to them. So I get to borrow Dina for just a minute. Is that okay? All right, Dina, we, we walked around earlier, so let's go, let's go walk around and see what's going on, okay? We're going to go this way. So, uh-huh. Dina, this, yeah. I know, right? This is your church family. Those are your, those are your, your family right there, right? You've known them your whole life. But you're just getting to know us right now. And over time, some of these faces will become friends. Some of these folks are going to teach you about God and about God's love for you and about what it means to be a child of God. This building will offer you shelter and safety. And in times when it feels like life is just too difficult, this family and this place might be a comfort for you. So we are really glad that you are here with us and that your family is here with us in worship and in community. Now, congregation, this is Dina. Dina's new to this world. She's had a little practice. Uh... And she is now here with us. Her family have partnered with this congregation as they pursue the way of Jesus. Dina is quite young, but at some point will hear God's call. And part of the way she will understand God's call for her life is because you will have shown her what Jesus looks like. You will have taught her what the sound of God's voice is like. And so when we dedicate a family into our congregation, it is a partnership and a set of promises that we make to each other and to God. So we're going to do that this morning, okay? We're going to start with your folks. I'm going to ask you a couple things, and your response would be that we will. Um, Will you promise to do your best as father and as mother to Dina? Will you promise to show her Christ's love to be an example to her of grace and forgiveness and kindness as you've known it from God, will you? Congregation, it's your turn to say some promises. Will you be an example of Christ to this family? Will you, for this child, be a safe place where laughter can fill this space? I know. Laughter sounds really good in here. It does. Mm -hmm. Will you partner with this family as they follow the way of Jesus? Showing them the path that you have found, clearing out the way so they don't trip where they can help it. Will you be Christ for this family? Will you? We will. Let me offer 
this blessing for you all. Ready? May the Lord bless you and keep you, Dino. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his smile and laughter upon you and give you peace now in all of your days. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here's your daughter. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Will you pray with me? God, we are so grateful this morning. Thank you that we are here and that you are in this place with us. Thank you for the blessing of children, for Dina and her family, for the gift of belonging within a church community. Thank you for the chance to encounter you in one another, to be filled up by your spirit and your word. We are hungry for your truth. We want to live it out and to reflect you, our creator. Your ways are hard because they do not come naturally to us. But we were created to bear your image and we want so badly to live out that purpose. Help us to love generously, to give eagerly, to forgive fully. Open our ears to the ways you are speaking to us in the ordinary moments of our days. Make us more and more aware of your goodness and your beauty. In our weakness, be our strength. In our decisions, be our guide. In our moment of need, be our source. In our sadness, be our comfort. And in all things, spoken and unspoken, be our good shepherd and help us to follow the path that you lay before us. We bring all things to you this morning, praying together the simple but profound prayer that you taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. Today's scripture, continuing with the Sermon on the Mount, comes from Matthew um, chapter 7, starting with verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will know them by their fruits. The word of the Lord.
you have a Bible, you should turn to Matthew chapter 7. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount now for quite a while, months. And today we are uh, rounding the bend as we wrap things up. Uh, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew is the first book in what we call the New Testament or the second half of our Bible. Every day when I go home, I have a crisis. You maybe have a similar kind of crisis that I have, or you might not be quite as neurotic as I am. But here's my crisis. So this is a map um, of where we are right now. Can you see that? So like right in the middle, right in the middle about, oh, most of the way down is City Hall and then a big roundabout circle. And then if you go to the left, there is the church and the parking lot at kind of the bottom left of the screen. Uh, I'll show you where they are. And every day I leave to go home north. But that is not the way that I drive home, right? That if I had a helicopter, I could get home a lot faster. But I do not, so I take a car. So that's, by the way, the crow flies. But here's the dilemma. Every time I get right here, which is at Marengo and Walnut, I have to decide which way I'm going to go. Do you ever have this happen? Where you think there's like 17 different ways to go home or to get to wherever you're going. And if at any point you take a different way, you could have like a completely different life. No, just me. I think this all the time. My big fear is that if I decide to go straight and then cut up Maple and then go up Los Robles, that like what if that's where I was going to get in a wreck? So then I would take a ride on Walnut and think, thank goodness I didn't go straight and avoided that wreck. Or what if the danger is on Walnut, so I should have gone, it's a crisis every day. It's a problem. Now I've given you this crisis, so you are welcome. You will now think every time you have a choice when you're driving, one of those ways might lead to life or might lead to death. Uber? Uber is always the way to death. <clears throat> Guaranteed. Oh, they'll drive me. I've got, not gotten to the point where I have a personal driver yet. There is always this reality I have, though, that you have to make a choice. And this happens for me in like this really small way with how I get from point A to point B. But it's happening all the time in all kinds of ways for us all the time. We're making these choices. Now when Jesus stands up on the mountain and begins to preach... What we call the Sermon on the Mount, found in these three chapters in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. What Jesus is doing is giving us a choice. For most of human history, the idea of choice just wasn't a thing. You didn't get to choose what kind of job you had. You didn't get to choose where you were born or where you spent your life. You didn't get to choose what God you worship or what kind of economy or who you voted for. Life was just, it was. Now in Jesus' time, and we've talked about this, they live in Israel in this land called Canaan, but they're not really in charge. Rome is in charge. And that's just how things are. Rome makes sure that they don't have choices. They just have allegiance and obedience to the nation state. So when Jesus shows up, 
is baptized, and then the Spirit takes Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days or 40 nights. And Jesus emerges from the wilderness and begins to preach. One of the first things that Jesus says is repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This language of kingdom begins the idea of a choice. It just seemed like there was the kingdom of the world, known as Rome. Right? Rome's like the empire where the sun never sets kind of thing. And that idea carries forward all the time. Rome becomes like a city on a hill. Rome is the only kingdom. And Caesar is the only king. So when Jesus says to repent or to turn around because the kingdom of heaven has come near, it sort of explodes reality into options. So then when Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing is showing us the kingdom. Not the kingdom for some time later on in the future when we die, because Jesus says the kingdom is, is near, it's in your midst. This is like a present, visceral reality. There are two kingdoms. There's this kingdom of the world and then there's this kingdom of heaven. Now for week after week after week, since we've been in here together, we've been talking about what the kingdom of heaven looks like. But what it feels like to be within it the loveliness, the beauty, the comprehensibility of the whole thing. And if we're honest, it's the way we hope we can live, forgiving, without revenge or violence, with generosity of heart, trusting in God, not having to always trust in our own gumption and our own self-determination. Sounds great. Blessed are those is the way that Jesus starts this sermon off and explains to us the kingdom. So here's what I'm going to do this morning. If you would um, humor me, we're going to have what I'm calling a nerdy interlude where I want to take a step back from this individual passage. I want to look at the Sermon on the Mount as a whole so we can locate ourselves once again inside of it because there's a lot of things that have been happening and we can take it kind of word by word or verse by verse, but sometimes it's helpful to sort of fly about 10,000 feet above and look down and see what it is that Jesus is doing with the form. Okay, so we're going to dive in together. If you have a Bible, you can open it because we're going to bounce around a little bit. Take a deep breath. Put on your school hat. You've been in school for the last week, Judah and Isaiah. So welcome back. We're going to do this thing. Okay, you ready? And I'm borrowing pretty heavily on a book that we've been recommending by uh, the late Glenn Stassen, Living the Sermon on the Mount. He does a beautiful job of sketching out what's really happening in the substructure of the sermon. So this here is kind of my quick little graphical representation of the Sermon on the Mount. Chapters 5 through chapter 7. And in the middle is this section from 521 to 712. And that feels like the meat of the thing. There are different cues. By the way, did you know that verse and chapters are not a thing that's like in the original text? We put those in there so we would know where to look. But that's not something that was originally in there. So we could sort of scrub those out of your Bible and look at just the form and the language and you might see other kinds of patterns of the ways that we could divide this thing up. So one of the things that happens in the Sermon on the Mount is you get this blessings part in the beginning. 
what we call the Beatitudes. And this call to be salt and light. This is in chapter 5. And I'm going to read you this first section I'm calling Torah here. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets, Jesus says. This is verse 17. I've not come to abolish these, but to fulfill them. For I tell you truly, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribe and Pharisees, you will be never able to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus uh, is about to enter into what is called like uh, Jesus's interpretation of Torah. Torah is the first five books of the Bible is also kind of the central thesis of what it means to be God's people, the Jewish people. Jesus takes their tradition and he interprets it for them again. This is a very natural way to teach in the time. Jesus teaches them in a very Jewish way as well. So to start off this teaching, starts with a set of blessings and then says this line about, I'm about to say some things about the law, about Torah. And just in case there's any confusion, I am not advocating for its removal or for its subjugation, but in fact, its completion, its wholeness. This is what Jesus is offering in the teachings on the Sermon on the Mount. A way that brings the law into wholeness and fulfillment. And then starts with this section, that middle yellow section. You've heard it said, but I say. And we talked about all of these individually. One of the things... That Glenn Stassen helped me to see was the form this middle section takes. But before we get there, I want to look at how this section concludes, which is what we talked about last week. This is seven twelve. In everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. Sounds like the golden rule. Pretty simple. For this is the summation of the law. And of the prophets. Jesus starts the teaching by saying, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then gives this very wide and beautiful interpretation of the law. And then concludes it by saying, it's all summed up just right here in this one little phrase. If those five books of the Bible were hard to hold on to, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay, then how about just this couple of chapters of teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And if even that's too hard to hold on to, just hold on to this line. Just do to other people as you would have them do to you. Elsewhere, Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor. The law and the prophets hang off of this. So there is this sort of bookending that happens. And in the middle of that is this. This is where things get really nerdy. And this is where I'll blame Glenn. In the middle, there are 14 triplets, 14 teachings that happen in what's like a triad form. For a while, it was thought that the way that Jesus teaches is by saying, you've heard it said, but I said. So sort of a like a two-part piece, a call and a response. But I think the more beautiful way to understand it, and this is the way that Stassen talks about it, is that each of these are triads where Jesus starts with what's called traditional righteousness then moves to what is called a vicious cycle. And then the last move is the transforming pattern. 
You could see this over and over again. I'll read one for you. You've heard it said, don't murder. And whoever murders is liable to judgment. That's the traditional pattern. But I say, if you're angry, you'll be liable to judgment. And if you say a fool, you'll be liable to the fires of hell. So that becomes this vicious pattern. Even anger itself is like death. And then this transforming initiative out of it. Come to terms quickly with those who you have an issue with. Reconcile. Happens over and over again. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say, if you even look at somebody with that sort of hunger to possess, then you've already committed adultery into your heart. And then the resolving pattern. If your right eye causes you to sin, your arm causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it out. It's better to lose a part than the whole thing. There's these triplets. Happens 14 times. Why does that matter? That definitely seems like that is just sort of nerdy sideline stuff to the meat of the sermon. But what Jesus is doing is he's telling us something about the Sermon on the Mount, about the teaching of Torah in a very, very Jewish way. And if you were hearing with what would have been an ear at the time, you would have seen it. It would have been like blinker lights kind of coming on. 14 is one of these numbers. Three is another one, and then seven is the other. These really, really important numbers in Judaism and in other religions as well. They become numbers that symbolize wholeness or completeness. You can see these forms all over the place. Like three, I mean, we wouldn't look much further than like the Trinity to see that form played out. But even encoded in like nature and in just in our everyday patterns, threes happen. People seem to die in threes if you're paying attention to it. Seven is the pattern that the Bible starts off with. In seven days, the heavens and the earth are created and all that's in them. And God blesses that cycle and calls it holy, calls it good, calls it tov. And then 14 is double seven, which is double good. One place you can see this is the very beginning of Matthew's gospel. Matthew gives a genealogy of Jesus. I won't read it for you because it's a lot of names and that's not what we're talking about today. But the very end of it, it says, so these are the generations from Abraham to David. There are 14 of them. And then from David to the Babylonian exile, there are 14 generations. And from Babylon to the Messiah, there are 14 generations. Again, Matthew is telling this Jewish audience something in a very Jewish way, which is that what you have been waiting for, for the world to be brought to completion, is happening in this story of Jesus the Messiah. So much so that we're going to even tell it to you in a form that screams out wholeness and completion. And so inside the sermon, you have this pattern right in the middle. These 14 teachings set up in triplets. It's like Jesus is saying, this part right here is good. It's really, really good. It's tov is the other way that the Hebrew Bible would say it. There is an intelligibility to it. Tov is the language for goodness in Genesis 1. And then telos is the language of completeness or wholeness, typically translated as perfection. Like be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. It's the language of telos. What Jesus is doing in the sermon in this middle section is showing us what it means to live toward wholeness according to God's design. And Jesus tells it to us in a way that his Jewish audience would have known exactly what was happening. So, if this section, 
that we just finished last week about forgiving enemies, about how to live peaceably with one another, about how to resist the revenge impulse, about how to keep our promises one to another. All of that stuff, not judging, but trusting in God. If that is good, if that is good, if that is very good, then this section, it feels like it comes a little bit out of the blue. Because immediately after all of that goodness, Jesus begins to issue a warning. Again, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. Easy is not exactly right. The road is narrow or constraining that leads to destruction. There are many who take it. But the gate is narrow and the road is tight that leads to life and there are few who find it. And then this language, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. This language of warning, beware. But we were just in goodness, Jesus. And, and this goodness seems like exactly the way that we want to live. It's exactly the way that we hope the world could be. It's not the way the world is, but it rings true to us. So why the warning? Who would not agree with this program of the kingdom of heaven? It's like the kingdom of Rome was working really well for the Jewish people. The problem with a choice is that when choosing the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, it means you don't go north on Marengo and take a right on Maple means you took the right on walnut. It's a different path. And so to choose the kingdom of heaven is to not choose the kingdom of the world, of empire, of Caesar, of Rome, of Babylon, of whoever it is at the time. Whatever is asking for your allegiance to choose the kingdom of heaven is to not choose this one. And that is not exactly like hunky-dory for the powers of this world. It will cause conflict. Jesus has sprinkled this reality throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for my name's sake. At the very end of the sermon, Jesus says, the one who hears and does is like someone who builds the house on the rocks. So when the storms come and the winds blow, the house stands. What is this with storms and winds? Like we were just wanting to do the Jesus thing with Jesus and sing Kumbaya and that would be it. Jesus issues this warning. Now there is sometimes a thought, and I I fall into it as well, that the point of living the Sermon on the Mount, of bringing it into our lives, is that we'll fix the world. That the world will be better off, and they will say thank you to us, if we can live this Jesus way. I don't want to spoil the end of the book of Matthew. That is not how it goes. Jesus teaches the sermon, but then for the rest of Jesus' life lives the sermon. Becomes the sermon on the mount. And is killed. So this warning is understandable. One of my professors... He says this about the task of the church. 
Not that the church is a social program to make the world a better place. Because it's about choice. It's about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdoms of this world. Stanley Hauerwas is his name, and he says, The church helps the world understand what it means to be the world. It's a bit of contrast. For the world has no way of knowing it's the world without the church pointing to the reality of God's kingdom. You don't know that you are an empire. You don't know that you are in Egypt until the sea opens up and you walk into the wilderness and you realize there is another way to live. So when we are feel this sort of called out of these destructive, vicious patterns that we've been living in and step into what is this transforming way to live. We are stepping out of another system. And that system will have different ways and means to pull us back into it. Sometimes it's enticement, sometimes it's temptation, sometimes it's outright threat. But still, to be the people of God is to be a people set apart. So the world might be able to more clearly see that it is the world and thereby crave another world. Again, it's this, that you have to make a choice. Now, if we zoom back out, that middle section that becomes the summation of the law and the commandments, the way to live. Jesus' interpretation of the big tradition. Then what bookends that is a set of blessings and a set of curses. The blessings are like the Beatitudes, pretty obvious. Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry and the thirsty. And again, Jesus is not making this stuff up whole cloth, but is telling them something they already know. If you have a Bible, you could turn to Deuteronomy 11. I'll read it for you. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Old Testament. It's the last book of the Torah, and it is what is known as the second giving of the law. So in second half of Exodus and in Leviticus, the people get the law. Book of Numbers talks about that process and talks about their journey through the wilderness. In Deuteronomy, it takes place with Moses, can you guess where? Back on a mountain, talking to the people and teaching them, giving them back again all of the commandments of what it means to be the people of God. And Moses says it in this way. It says, see, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I'm commanding you today. And the curse if you don't obey the Lord your God. But turn away from what I'm commanding you and follow other gods that you have not known. So when the Lord your God has brought you into the land that you are entering to occupy, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim. This is a mountain on one side. And then the curse you were to sound, you were to set that on Mount Elab. You've got these two mountains and you've got these two realities. See, I set before you today blessings and curses, Moses says. A little bit later, if you flip through to, toward the end of Deuteronomy in chapter 30, you get it again. I want you, if you can, to listen closely. 
This is chapter 30, verse 11. Chapter 30, verse 11, you can write it down if you want to go back and read it a little bit later. But listen to the way that Moses says this. Surely this commandment that I am commanding you today is not too hard for you, nor is it too far away. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us and get it so that we might hear it and obey it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the other side of the sea for us and get it for us so that we may hear it and observe it? No, the word is very near to you. It's in your mouth and your heart for you to observe. And then this, see, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments, walk in God's ways, following all of these decrees and ordinances, you shall live, become numerous, and God will bless the land and bless you. But if your heart turns away and you don't hear, and you serve other gods, I declare to you that you'll perish, you'll not live on earth for long. I call heaven, this is, this is crazy. This is a crazy line. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. What? And then this line. Choose life so that you and your people may live loving the Lord your God, obeying him, holding fast, for that will mean life and length of days. Choose life. This is exactly what Jesus is doing in the form of the Sermon on the Mount. is setting before the people giving them back the big tradition from Moses and saying, again, setting before you life and death, blessings and curses. Blessed are you when, and beware if not. And so again, it's the choice. The way that Jesus talks about the choice is the narrow way and the wide way. This narrow gate and this wide gate that lead to a narrow path or a wide path. The paradox here is it's like a funnel would be a great way to think about it. It's real easy to get in the wide side, but as you begin to walk that path, you will find yourself constricted and you thought you were choosing a way that would lead to life because it was so easy to get on that path and the door was really well lit and they opened both sides of the door and you walk through and you find yourself constrained and constrained until you are caught in these vicious cycles that feel a lot more like death. The other path is hard to find. It's a narrow door, Jesus says, a narrow gate. But as you enter it, it will open up into abundance. And you will find yourself on what is a wide path to life. It is a paradox to find the easy way or the hard way. But we are always choosing. I want to tell you a story. Of a choice that was made. So there is a village in France, in the south side of France, called La Chambon. In that village, 
decades ago was this group of people. They were French Huguenots. Huguenots were a group of Christians who faced intense persecution at the hands of the larger church. And so they were looking for a place where they could live in peace, where they could escape persecution. If you go back and read stories about this village in Lachambon and the ancestors from it, they'll say that when they left the land of their oppression, it was like leaving Egypt. And when they found themselves on the journey to this new place, it was like moving through the wilderness. And there was something about Lachambon that felt like the promised land. A little bit later into their history, they call a pastor to the small church in the community. His name's Andre Trokma. His wife's name is Magda. And the two of them have been trained in a life lived according to the Sermon on the Mount. Trokma has been practicing nonviolent resistance and peacemaking, a life of pacifism. And he decides that when he gets to this village, he and some friends, they're going to start a school for children and young adults that can practice the way of peace as part of their training. So for years, he has been in this space preaching and teaching to these people in La Chambon about the Sermon on the Mount. He's creating Jesus people. And the whole community takes this project on. We know what happened in the last 70 years in Europe and in France. At some point, the Nazi regime moves in, right, conquers part of France, but then part of it subjects it to like a puppet leadership structure, known as like the Vichy French, and asks them to carry out the program that the Nazis had come up with for ethnic cleansing. So it became really dangerous in France at this time to be Jewish. All of these new laws sprung up, some of them even more harsh in France than they were even in Germany at the time. And then the French leaders who decided that they would collaborate with this new, this new empire, they began to well, turn in their fellow neighbors who were Jewish to whatever fate awaited them. Trachma and his congregation knew what was happening. They knew what was coming. And they had been practicing. They had been practicing for this moment. And so when the choice opened up in front of them, it was so natural to do what they did next. The short version of the story is over 5,000 Jewish refugees were saved because of what the congregation and community in Lachambon did for them. Took them in, hid them, fed them, kept them safe. But it wasn't like it just sprung out of nowhere. When the decree went forth from the government that things had changed and that anyone who was in France had to swear a new allegiance to a new power, to a new power, to a new empire... Trachma stood up in church the Sunday after 
as the new flag goes up, as the new program is put into place, as everyone's allegiances are focused on how to survive this moment in history, he says this. He says, tremendous pressure will be put on us to submit passively to a totalitarian ideology. If they do not succeed in subjugating our souls, at least they want to subjugate our bodies. The duty of Christians is to use the weapons of the spirit to oppose the violence that they will try to put on our consciences. So we appeal to all brothers and sisters in Christ to refuse to cooperate with violence. Can you feel what that must have felt like for Trockman to stand up in South France at this time and utter these words? He's speaking about the blessed life. He's speaking about what it means to follow Jesus, but he knows that to say it is to utter a warning, that there's always a choice to be made. He says this, loving, forgiving, and doing good to our adversaries, that's our duty. Yet we must do this without giving up and without being cowardly. We shall resist whenever our adversaries demand of us obedience contrary to the orders of the gospel. Let me say that again. We will resist whenever our adversaries demand of us obedience contrary to the orders of the gospel. We shall do so without fear and also without pride and without hate. This is the message that had been preached for for years in La Chambeau. So... When kids show up at their door, hungry, thirsty, without a home, being chased by death, it wasn't even a question what they would do. They would offer shelter. They would offer food. They would offer, they would offer life. Trachma and the congregation know that this is the narrow way, know that this is more difficult. It is much easier to appease the powers it is much easier to play along. When asked, Trachma said, these people came here for help and for shelter. I am their shepherd, and the shepherd does not forsake the flock. You do hear the language of Jesus there, right? It's right there. It's the language of, of God. I'm the good shepherd. And Trachma and his people are in the Jesus tradition. They have been practicing the Sermon on the Mount in such a way that when they are forced with a choice, it barely even feels like a choice. They just keep following Jesus. Trachma's arrested. Others are arrested. The uproar causes their release a few weeks later. Daniel... Andre's cousin gets arrested and is brought to a concentration camp and he and some others are killed. It costs something to choose. Here's what one writer says about this congregation and community in La Chambon. It seemed ordinary to them for it was their normal way of relating to others. They simply continued to act humanely at a time when to do so could have cost them their life. Jesus gives us the good way to live. Gives us back the big tradition. 
I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. And in case you're having a hard time holding on to all of it, just do to other people as you would have them do to you. Because all the law and the prophets can be summed up in this. This is the good way. This is the way of heaven. This kingdom is near to you. But to follow it is always to choose. And the choice sometimes is a big deal. It involves actual life and death circumstances. Part of what we're doing here every week is we are trying to make the way of Jesus the normal way of relating to others. The normal way that we live so that it becomes reflective and instinctual. So that when there is a choice, we don't even feel like it's a choice because we can discern life from death. So when Jesus says, you're going to have to lay down your life to find it, you're going to have to lose it first. The way to life is the path of death. It doesn't even feel like a choice. Three years, Jesus walks with his disciples and he keeps telling them this over and over again. You're going to have to choose at some point. At some point, something's going to fall. The winds are going to blow and y'all are going to flee because you don't quite believe yet that this is the good way. That professor of mine, he says this way. He says, if there's anything to this Christian stuff, it must surely involve the conviction that the Son of God would rather die on the cross than for the world to be redeemed by violence. Moreover, the defeat of death through resurrection makes possible as well as necessary that Christians live nonviolently in a world of violence. Friends, all of the time we are given a choice. I do not know when that moment will arrive for us. It feels like La Chambon. It feels so full of death. And we are given a choice. I am afraid that some of those moments are here. When certain powers and principalities of this world are fighting to make it seem like there is not a choice about who will be given sanctuary, about who will be given food and water, about who will be offered life or death. So what we will do over and over again is we will follow Jesus. We will make it a natural part of our life so that that walking, so that that seeking the path becomes reflexive. The normal way of relating to others. Friends, the Jesus way is good. May we practice it. May we walk it together. Next week we're going to talk about the winds and the storms and the prayer that the house stands. But today it's walking the path. Will you pray with me? God, we are seeking your way. Putting aside distraction, setting our intention on you. We are seeking the way of life. Barely convinced that Jesus is onto something, but believing enough to follow. God, this moment, 
We believe enough to follow, but help our unbelief that your way is the good way. You have been good to us. Make us good for this world. Amen. Amen.